Thank you, worship team. Yeah, be seated. Good morning, everybody. Happy Freedom Day. Isn't that neat? Time? Yeah, clap, clap loud. like to welcome everybody here. Thank you, those who are online with us also today. We're glad you're sharing this time with us. Thank you for making a day where we get to worship in freedom, that you made it a priority that we are all together to worship here today. To our guests, just a moment with you. My name is Brian. I'm our lead pastor. This worship guide, when you walk through the door, we're going to go into these, this sermon here next and talk a little bit about the Bible, talk about the Ten Commandments. There's an outline here. This is actually the framework of the sermon itself. So if you want to fill in the blanks, you'll see them up here as we go along. But to our guests, also this Connect card is really important. For those online, you'll see a Connect card on our Facebook Live page. You also see it on our internet site. We would love it if you're joining us for the first time today to fill this out. Uh, for our guests, you can drop it off in a box when you're walking the door, out the doors here or out in our welcome center. We have a gift for you. Those online, you just hit click and away it goes. But it's kind of like, I call that paper gold because it's the one way that we can connect with you and say, hey, what's God doing in your life? Are you looking for a new church home? Things like that. So but we're glad everybody's here today as we continue on in this series on the Ten Commandments. And as I was working on this sermon, and it was a hard one this week, as we're here in the, in the middle of the commandments, it gets into some interesting, it's a beautiful place to be in these commandments, and it's a hard place to be all at the same time. But as I was thinking of this one and thinking of today being the 4th of July, I, it, it, a fond memory came back in my mind of, as for some of you, most of you know, except for a few that don't, I, I refereed officiated high school basketball for 34 years and small college basketball, and I retired a year ago. But there was, when I'm thinking of this sermon, there was, there was something that happened at every varsity game. I, I was going through my memory. I think I officiated over 2,000 games. And there was something that happened at every game. Can you guess what that is? Those online, you can kind of type your guess. What do you think happened at every game? What's that loud? A fight. Well, not every game, but yeah, there was a few. I, that was We tried to prevent those a lot. No, there was never a bad call. <laughs> never. Never a bad call. There was some different opinions, but... I love it. You should have heard first service. It was like, but no, that's, that's not it. What else? There's a winner and a loser. What do I hear over here? National Anthem. Spot on every varsity game. You know, it always happened in the same format. Uh, we have a crew of three. We'd be out there. I'd be at the half-court line. We would, we would, as we come on the court, we would look to see where the, where the flag was. And then uh, right before uh, starting lineups, we would all stop. Uh, we would turn and posture and turn towards the flag, cover our heart, and we would sing the national anthem. 2,000 times, 2,000-plus times, I've heard a live version of the Star-Spangled Banner. Some of them are absolutely amazing. Some of them is like, oh my goodness. <laughs> I've heard Jimi Hendrix style, you know, on the guitar more than once. I've heard so many, so many beautiful ways. But there was something about the national anthem. There's, a, there's, a, there's always a peak. There's always a peak in the middle of the national anthem or towards the end where it hits this crescendo. It hits this part that every time as you're standing out there in front of all these people, never missing a call, your hair would stand up just on your arms. Oh, say does that star-spangled ever yet wave. And then the crescendo. Over the land of the free 
it always said that second note, you know? That part was always the loudest part, and your hair would stand up. And the home of the brave was okay, but over the land of the free is the crescendo. It's the peak. And this weekend, we're celebrating that blessing of freedom. We hold freedom as a premium in our nation. Anything that restricts our freedom, we get kind of tough about it, don't we? And what's interesting over the last couple of decades is watching the growth of personal individual freedom. What does this have to do with the Ten Commandments? You know, the Ten Commandments were commonly in a lot of communities displayed in a very prominent public square or environment. And today most of those are gone, as you know. And the reason why the Ten Commandments are gone from the public square is because of the belief that they violated our personal freedom. Our effort these last several weeks is to put the Ten Commandments back center. You're like going, yeah, let's get them back in the square. No, 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 we're getting them back in the center of our hearts. Because nothing speaks the Ten Commandments louder than not a piece of granite, but a heart filled with Christ. And so we're going to be talking about, that's why we're wrestling through these. They're so deep. There's, you could preach for three weeks on a single commandment, but I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5. It's your fifth book inside your Bible. We've been there for several weeks. Deuteronomy chapter 5. I want you to get out a pen because there's going to be lists and other scriptures I'm going to share that you'll just need to jot down around if you want to do some follow-up this week. And we are in this, yeah, as Lene mentioned, these laws in life. The Ten Commandments are laws that give us life. They're not about restricting freedom. They're about giving us freedom and giving us life to the full. It's when we disobey these foundational laws that God has given us that we become slaves to sin. And that brings death, not only spiritual death between us and God, but between each other. And it brings physical death when we look through the whole Bible. The hard part about these Ten Commandments, as we go through each one, is that we all come to the realization that I think we've all, almost all of us probably, have broken every one. But take heart. And we brought this up last week. These laws are about life. And so remember that God creates life and the one who has the power to create life also has the power to redeem life. Even if we've broken a rule or broken a law and spun our world around, God can redeem that. He redeems our life through Christ and a price that Jesus paid so we wouldn't have that penalty of sin stuck on us forever and that eternity would not be blocked off to us. And not only does God create life and not only does he redeem life through Christ, he restores life. No matter where we've been, what we see in these commandments, he can restore us to life and life to the full. You've got to believe that. And so today we're going to talk about the seventh commandment. It's one commandment that when disobeyed, it's unique. It enslaves and steals our freedom more than any other I am going to use some discretion as I go through this commandment, but I am also going to be very open. Parents, if you have children in a room with us today, you might want to think about, do we, I'm going to be cautious on how I share this commandment. But for children's ears, if you want them to be here, which is great. Uh, for the children in here, if you stay, because your mom and dad trust you with this, I'm going to ask you to think of every question you can and ask your mom and dad all the way home. Because I want you hearing it from your mom and dad in a biblical view than hearing it from the world about what we're going to talk about. Okay. 
So let's jump in here. Deuteronomy 5, let's put it up here on the screen. Deuteronomy 5, verse 18, the seventh commandment, you must not commit adultery. If you're visiting the first time thinking, oh man, we hit this weekend. Adultery is a showstopper. This word kind of stops us in our tracks. It kind of gives us, takes like a heavy breath. It feels like chest heaviness. You feel the temperature in the room go down. You feel yourself become flush, yet we did not change the thermostat. Because even if maybe I haven't done this, most of us have been immersed in what happens in this. This commandment carries a lot of weight. So let's start first with defining what adultery is. There's a lot of broad expansion, but it's actually very fairly precise. It's your first sermon note there on the back of your worship guide. Adultery is consensual sex outside of marriage. It's a simple definition, but it is focused. Adultery is consensual sex outside of marriage. Adultery involves at least one married person having consensual sex with someone who they are not married to. So I want to make this really clear. The seventh commandment focuses on marriage and sex within and without marriage. I think every week as we come here and look at these and we think, you know, this is the week we're all thinking, yeah, whew, finally, this is the one I haven't broken yet. You know, last week we were talking about, um, thou, you know, do not murder was the sixth commandment. And we're thinking, everybody's like, yeah, I'm glad I haven't done that one. And then we read the words of Jesus and everybody left, okay, I broke that one too. Jesus also expands the definition of this one. So I'm gonna put up here Matthew chapter five, verse 27. The very words of Jesus, he says, you have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out, throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better for you to lose that one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Here we go, Jesus expands it again, just like he did last week, just like he does all week. We, we keep referencing the Old Testament law, but we keep talking about from a New Testament view. Most of us, when we think of adultery, we think of the physical act of sex. So when we think of adultery, we think of the physical act of sex. And if I cannot be so graphic, but just say it pretty much happens in about a waist area. It's a focus of an area about here. And look at your next note together. Jesus shared adultery doesn't start that low. Jesus shares that adultery first begins about 12 to 16 inches higher. It starts here. You actually can commit it and break this commandment here first. He says, if we even look and entertain a thought of lust, if we even say in today's world, hey, check that out, we've committed adultery in our hearts. And the expansion of this commandment, in Jesus' words, probably incorporates everybody in this room. 
can't say with 100%. I just want us all to feel like, hey, we understand the depth of these commandments and how easy they are to break. Jesus says, gouge out your eye, cut off your dominant hand. I don't know if I need to get really descript here about why the eye and the hand have a part in this. Gouge out the eye and cut off the hand. Let's talk about the eyes. I think everybody can figure out the hand thing. Let's talk about the eyes. Very words of Jesus in Luke chapter 11. Jesus says, your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, what you let in, your whole body is filled with darkness. Jesus says, hey, this eye, he says, gouge out your eye first because he knows the eye is the entry point to the heart. What we let in our eyes, what we let in our eyes is going to fill us with light or it's going to flat out fill us with darkness. There's nobody that knows the pathway to the heart better than our enemy. The enemy knows. If I can just get their eyes open to this, I've got them. And in the last two decades, he's, he's provided a strategy which we call pornography, which floods through the eyes. His strategy is so good, it's available everywhere. When I was a kid, it was hard to come across something like pornography. Today, it is accessible right on our phones. It's accessible everywhere. Our television sets are filled with it, even if it's a North PG-rated show. His strategy is to surround us and flood us and just fill our eyes with darkness. So let me talk just a little bit about pornography because it's a big issue. And this question, is pornography really harmless? Let me give you a few points to tell you it's not. And, and I think pornography is such a big industry that we'd say it's just sex. Let's not get too, like, Christian about this or too uh, Puritan or whatever. It's just sex. Oh, my goodness, it is not just sex. Pornography is, is it harmless? Well, first off, we know that it's addictive and progressive. You cannot find a, it isn't Christian science research, it's science research that shows what pornography does to the mind and how it locks into the neurons. It compares it to the first two times you use meth and how quickly addicting it is and how it controls the mind. And not only is it addictive, it's progressive. As we become desensitized to what we're seeing, we go after more graphic things and we expand what we want to see because we're so desensitized. We keep adding to the perversity of what we're looking at. Not only is it addictive and progressive, it, it welcomes a third party into the relationship. Whenever I look through a screen, I don't, it doesn't matter if I know their name or not, I invite them into my marriage relationship the minute I'm looking at them. Marriage is a covenant of three. It's holy matrimony is my wife, myself, and God. It's a covenant of three. And pornography bumps God out pretty quick. It ruins how one thinks about women and sex. It gives this really distorted view of God's gift of sexuality and it looks and it makes women look like sport and like objects. 
And so it reframes our mind to how we see women and how we see what sexuality is all about. And how it ruins it is it really becomes a very self-gratifying thing. This next one's important, I think, for our church. To engage in pornography is to engage in sex slavery. We have a ministry for women rescued out of sex trafficking. Every time I engage pornography, I'm engaging in supporting the sex slavery network. I'm feeding the mechanism that makes it keep producing. I am looking at somebody's 20-year-old daughter whose dad is crushed and mom are crushed because the trappings of their daughter who's probably drug addicted and all these things to keep them docile and keep them in that slavery environment and keep abusing them. And every time I click, all it takes is a click and I feed the mechanism. It's counterfeit intimacy. People will try to tell you this lie. It's just sex. No. This is one of the deepest explorations of the heart and need. It's not ever just sex. It's counterfeit intimacy. When I engage in pornography, I'm ultimately rejecting my spouse. I'm saying, I don't need you. I don't need to engage you at all. I'm just going to engage this. It creates unrealistic expectations in a relationship. What I watch is personally gratifying creates really crazy expectations for my spouse. And it becomes, again, self-gratifying. And the last thing, last point, it's a common and major factor in adultery. The percentage of people that begin in, in pornography will eventually get brave enough to go outside and actually have a physical contact with somebody. So it's common and major factor not only in adultery but in divorce. And it's not just men. What's scary about this, and I think God has a, has a unique wiring with men and women. Men are very visual. Women are very spiritual first when it comes to sexuality. But what's crazy is that the statistics just last year showed that a one-third last year one-third of the people watching the most popular sites today are women. And that number has grown 2 to 3% a year. Which is a rewiring of them. I have a wide definition of pornography. There's movies on cable that I just... There's songs that can change my heart. It doesn't always have to be sight. And I imagine with this wide definition that Jesus gives us that most of us in this room have failed somewhere along the way I have failed I am not perfect I battle all the time I have systems in place and things Jesus says gouge and cut gouge and cut he doesn't mean gouge out your eye he doesn't mean cut off your hand what he does say is please be as aggressive and radical as you can to stop the damage that this does. And then he finishes those two. After he says gouge and cut, he talks about the issue of hell. It's better to lose that than to have your body thrown into hell. And the issue of hell here is, is when we deal with this unrepentant habitual sin. 
adultery of the heart, sex outside the marriage, pornography, this unrepentant habitual sin that gets deep-seated in us. And what happens is when it gets deep-seated in us, we pull away from God and we pull away from our spouse because of the shame. The more we do this, the more we hide. And it pulls us away from God. And that is ultimately what hell is, is complete separation from him where I choose that this was better than my relationship with God. First Corinthians 6, if you want to write this down, First Corinthians 6, 9. It says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin, those who get deeply rooted in it, those who are unrepentant and just hang in there and worship, and worship that over God, none of these will inherit. He goes over a long list after that. None of these will inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's how damaging it can be. It can pull us away from our God and our Savior. We had this class last fall, Fierce Marriage is awesome. This room was full and... Um, Ryan and Selena Frederick wrote the book, and there's a quote from this book. It says, sexuality is an atomic force, atomic force. In its proper place, it binds you like you would not believe. But when yielded without caution, it levels cities, and the fallout re renders them uninhabitable. The atomic force of sexuality can bind us in marriage like you would not believe. We're gonna talk about that or it has the power to level your household, your home, your workplace, your city, and your nation. If you want to write down Genesis 19, look what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. It was uninhabitable because the sexual sin was so bad. Why this one so big is that sexual sin has the ability when it tears apart the family unit, it tears apart the foundation of society and that tears apart a nation. And sexuality is all over the board in our nation right now. And ultimately, adultery in our hearts and body becomes adultery and unfaithfulness to God. Whew, okay, we're through all that. We've been really talking about this commandments are, you know, people get on us, they're about a bunch of don'ts. They're about a bunch of do's. Let's talk about the beauty of God's creation and sexuality. Understanding God's design of sex, sexuality, physical intimacy is very important. At first, it's a gift. It's a major gift in the marriage covenant. It is made for one male and one female and only in marriage. And I'll explain why. God is for Get this, God is for sexual happiness. God is for amazing sex inside a marriage. He created it. So pray for that. In your married relationships or in your future marriage, invite the passionate love of God and a depth of the spirit into your relationship through sexuality. But let's explain why. Well, let's explain why is it so important. Let's go back to God's design. To do that, we're gonna go back to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 20, with the very first couple that were married. Starting in verse 20, it says, But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took out one of the man's ribs. 
And then he closed up that place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. One relationship, one marriage, male and female, and they become, write this down, underline it in your Bible, it's really important, one flesh. They become one flesh in God's design. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. There was no sin yet. To stand there naked and not have any shame. So when we see this in, in the earliest part of God's design, he designs marriage and he designs it for a man and woman and he designs that they come together and they become one flesh. So here's our third sermon note together. Physical intimacy is a big part of this for it creates one flesh. Physical intimacy creates one flesh. Physical intimacy brings two together in one. And then they're united together. I don't need to get really descriptive on this. I think you all get it. They become one. It's not just the physical intimacy. The physical intimacy affects the spiritual intimacy, and the spiritual intimacy affects the physical intimacy. But nothing does this in the act, the act of physical intimacy. That one flesh, when we become one flesh, what that means is no longer two, but one. They're united together emotionally, intellectually, financially, spiritually, any way that you can imagine, they're united into one. They operate as one. They function as one. They balance each other. It's perfect. It's like the completion of man for those who are called into marriage. Like you see the wholeness now, like you could never see it before. But let me share with you 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 12, what happens when it goes outside. It says, you say, this is great for 4th of July, you say I'm allowed to do anything, freedom, but not everything is good for you. I must not become a slave to anything. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her. He's using this description of prostitution, leaving the marriage covenant outside the marriage covenant. It's what's key here. When I do that, even for a moment, I become one flesh. The two are united into one. Verse 17, but the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the bodies as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. It's unique. Don't you realize that your body is a temple? For us believers, our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and given to you by God. You do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Corinth had a lot of struggle with sexuality. And here's this description that 
the body of believers in his church, he says you're joined to Christ, and because of Christ, we're a temple God dwells in. We're in one spirit with him. So when you join with somebody outside of marriage, covenant, you bind with them. If you go out to somebody else outside your marriage covenant and you bond with them sexually, even for five minutes, you create one flesh because that's how God designed this. And when that five minutes over and you're leaving, it's so bound that it tears back apart. It tears back apart. One flesh is designed to come together and stay permanent as long as we're on earth till death do us part. But when we do this and step out, whether it's pornography, whether it's a relationship, an actual physical relationship, every time we do that, we join in one flesh with them and we tear every time it separates. This is why sexuality outside of marriage and I go serially from one person to another in a sexual relationship, every time that happens, I join as one flesh, I tear as one flesh. I join as one flesh, I tear as one flesh. Scar, 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 and next thing you know, I don't even know what sexuality is. I'm so numb and so damaged because I shared something so intimate and designed for one thing, and it's just torn apart. So if you got your pins ready, what does one flesh look like? This is so neat when you look at God's design throughout the Bible. God designed sexuality for one man and woman by creating first their parts to fit. So this is kind of a simple one. Anatomy and physiology, for those of us who remember, we're designed with parts that actually fit. We only can become one with the different parts of male and female. And that physical intersection is a spiritual intersection. So not only does God design man and woman specifically that their parts fit, but he also designed them that their differences support. The male and female gender, their strengths and weaknesses, and every, I love this in premarital counseling. You get this 18-page report, and I'm sitting down with them and showing what they look like individually, and then what happens when you join those two together. 18 pages is saying, this is what one flesh looks like. And here's, I always say, like, here's your hands. The ends of your fingers are your strengths. These are your weaknesses. Here comes your wife. Bang! I don't need this because Kara is great at this. And I compliment Kara, my wife, because I'm really good at this. And that's not her strength. God sows them. He knows what he's doing. Not only has God designed sexuality for one man and woman by creating their parts to fit and their differences to support, but their union, only their union can bring forth life. Only a man and woman are designed to create life together. And that seed and ovum come together through the miracle of God and it creates life. And then they need that father and mother to raise them. And we know the damage of what happens when you don't have both. And the last, God's designed sexuality for man and woman is that their wholeness comes through unselfishness. When we do premarital counseling, I normally have like two 20-some-year-olds that have been selfish for 20-some years and are trying to figure out how do I be selfless and how do I come together and pick up my socks. But it, but it is, it's all talking about how do I become selfless because that's what humility is. When I become this for her and she becomes this for him, it fits together beautifully and it sews tighter 
humbleness towards each other, submission. Ephesians 5 is not about, it's about submission. The first one, submit to one another. Selfless. It's beautiful and selfless. We commonly talk about uh, in, in marriage counseling or premarital counseling that sexuality is in marriage is a barometer. It's a barometer how your marriage is doing. The more selfless you are to your partner, the stronger your sexuality, the stronger your spiritual and physical intimacy would be, the more selfless you are. The stronger your sexuality, the more intense your spirituality. They walk in hand together. When my spirituality with my wife is amazing, my sexuality will be amazing. And sexuality with my spouse also creates a spiritualness because of the sown act. Cover that in just a second. So that gives us this fourth sermon note. Sex is the super glue of marriage. I'm not shy to share this. It's God's design. The physical and spiritual intimacy makes you rock solid. And it's a barometer of your marriage. Because great sexuality requires these three things. It requires, to have that physical act requires that there is trust. It requires that there is vulnerability. And it's amazing when there's no shame. Those three ingredients make the physical and spiritual intimacy amazing. If I can refer you to a book, I'll reference a couple here, The Song of Solomon. But I'm only gonna pick out ones, knowing there are kids here. <laughs> Go read it, it's beautiful how it describes sexuality. Song of Solomon, chapter two, verse 16, my lover is mine and I am his. Look at that shared selflessness. My lover is mine, it's the female voice. My lover is mine and I'm his. Song of Solomon, chapter four, this is the male voice that says, you've captured my heart, my treasure, my bride. You hold it hostage with one glance of your eyes, with a single jewel of your necklace. Your love delights me, my treasure, my bride. Nothing's bigger than you. Now, there's a lot of steamy verses in Song of Solomon that are amazing too, and read them with your wife or with your husband. Because God's, Design of sexuality is beautiful. There should not be any shame in it. So what's interesting here is why does the seventh commandment only talk about sex in the marriage covenant? Why is this commandment not covering all the other areas where sexuality is or exists outside of marriage? So let's look at our fifth sermon note together. Covenantal love, love between my spouse and God and I is the, is the basis for holy sexuality. What that means is covenantal love is the basis for all sexuality. It is the only standard. God's design of marriage in one flesh is the only design for holy sexuality. It brings two people together, they're sewn together. It is for a lifetime, it is permanent. Having sex outside of marriage is against God's design. It believes the lies of our culture and it tears and it repeats and it tears and destroys. There's only one commandment because there's only one commandment where it exists and it's beautiful and you wait and you have patience for that because there's nothing else like it. Anything else is a cheap substitute. 
The seventh commandment is about do, not don't. Do be free. This commandment, like all the other commandments, is about freedom. And when I do it wrong, it's about slavery. And let me share the last sermon note with you. Holy sexuality brings freedom. When I do this right, and I follow God's design, and I mold in so tight, I'm free. I'm free from the slavery of sinful sexual behavior. I'm free from shame and guilt. I'm free from bad choices. I'm free to dive deep in marital love and create a super glue bond that brings joy and peace and unfathomable love to marriage. I'm free to explore the depths of my spouse through love. I'll leave you with a quote here from Joy McMillan. She's a Christian writer. She says, if, if we're not intentional about pursuing God's best for our marriages and grasping the tremendous role intimacy plays in that relationship, what was intended to be deeply enjoyed, a passionate, life-giving love affair, a light with laughter and fiercely protected and drenched in freedom, becomes a stuffy, awkward thing to be endured. Drenched in freedom. Our prayer is that we're all drenched in freedom today. That, that song going back to the one we sang, Freedom Reigns in This Place. The world's eyes are upon those who are of God and know His design, and the world is looking for the right answers in the wrong places, and when we are drenched in freedom, the world notices. Freedom reigns in this place. Why? Because of showers of mercy and grace that have forgiven all of us and restored us. Falling on every face is our prayer today. That this freedom falls on every face in this room. We go shine lightly. We walk out of here. I can't think of a better time to go to offering. Offering is a very special time of worship for us. I say this all the time because it's important. Offering is first, what do I give God that I need to give after hearing his word? Financial gifts keep the mission of the church going. When you're leaving today, there's boxes by the doors. You can sign up online and give without even thinking. Always give to God first. It's taken right out. And you know, all summer long, the mission stays the same and stays fueled. I hope you have freedom to give freely in that way and that giving to God your first fruits is something that gives you a lot of joy and freedom. I think the other freedom we need to talk about today is talk about us in this room. We've gone through seven commandments now. We've got a lot of feedback from you guys about where I'm not free. And so our offering today is how do I let freedom reign in this place? How do I not walk out these doors, this building, with shame? How do I not walk out of these doors still with something unsettled and these first seven commandments? How do we really be free? Today is Independence Day. How do we really be free today? And that's our offering. So would you bow your heads with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for these Ten Commandments. They're so important for joy and for freedom. They aren't don'ts. These are do's, especially when you see how beautiful sexuality is. Father, help us to quit listening to the lies 
But Father, in all these commandments, I know there's some here today that aren't free. We all fight for this freedom all the time. We want to be free. Father, my prayer is this person sitting here today or the people sitting here today says, I'm so tired of not being free. Jesus, please set me free. And let me tell you, you can make that decision today. And you got a whole church that will come with you, stand with you, walk with you. We do this all week long. It's what we're here for. Father, not, do not let one person leave this room not free today because there's a whole world out there that's looking for this freedom that we have. Father, let light shine into our bodies and let us wrestle well for our hearts and let your freedom fall on every face here. We pray this in the mighty name of Christ and all God's people said, amen.